0: So, just excited about this new series that we're embarking on this morning uh, together. King David, Shepherd, Leader, as you can tell from Michelangelo's sculpture at the very front of your uh, bulletin this morning. Uh, before we actually look at the passage, I just want to ask you a question. It's a question that was actually prompted by a sermon that a dear friend of mine uh, actually uh, gave Um and uh, just it keep, keeps kind of haunting me in a good way, uh, the, the question he raised. And the question was this. He, he said, how do we know if someone is close to the kingdom of God? How do we know if someone is close to the kingdom of God? Now, I'll be really honest with you. Uh, I, I think I know how we usually answer that question. And I won't impugn you with that as much as I'll say, I, I know how I typically answer that question. And I want to I want to answer it just just this way. There, there's a there's a there's a family that my family's very close to that we, we love really deeply. Our kids are very close. We're close to the parents and um, just really love them. And and they are not they're not believers. And we have we've walked with them. We've shared the gospel with them. We've had many many dinners with them. We've you know all kinds of fun things. We've we've laughed together. We've cried together. Uh, some of our sweetest friends—they don't know the Lord—and we've we've prayed because we really we really think they're close. You know what I mean? They're close, and and part of the reason we think they're close—this I mean, is just the way we think. Part of the reason we think they're close is they're really awesome people. I mean, they just really are. They're really great people. They're really nice. They're already friendly. They, they pretty much believe most of the things we would believe about how to raise children and how to walk through life and what's important in life. They just seem to be missing the center of the gospel. But in so many ways, they, they're just awesome people. And so we think, man, they, they're just they're close. Are they close to the kingdom? I think that's a, that's a really important question for us to raise because... As you, as you read in the New Testament, what you actually see in Jesus' ministry. For instance, in, in Matthew chapter 8, when the Gerasene demoniac, possessed by a demon, of whom no one can seem to corral, who Mark described as lacerated chains around him and naked, raging at Jesus. If you were to see him, would you say... He's close. He's he's close to the kingdom. Because in moments later from that moment, he'll be radically converted. What does it mean to be close to the kingdom? What do you see? And what you see, why is it that you draw certain conclusions about what you see? 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves. Come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. Samuel said to Jesse, "'Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here.' And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes was handsome. And the Lord said, "'Arise, anoint him, for this is he.' And then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we want to know Your truth from this, Your Word. And we can't do that without You opening up our eyes to see. So would You now, by the power of Your Spirit, come... And make yourself known. We ask this in Jesus' name, Amen. There's there's a name I want to read. See if you recognize it. Frank William Abignale. Few of you, yeah. You get a few smiles at that name. It's going to ring a bell for more of you in just a moment. Uh, He's one of America's top security consultants today, but he's best known for his former life, his life as a check forger, an imposter, an all-around confidence man. He became one of the most famous imposters of the last half century, assuming no fewer than eight different identities, including an airline pilot, a physician, a U.S. Bureau prison agent, and yes, a lawyer. Amazingly, he escaped from police custody two different times when he was arrested for these false identities. One time jumping out of an airplane as it was taxing away. Um, Another time as uh, when he was in federal penitentiary. What's remarkable is that all of what I just said happened before he was 21. It's starting to come to you, isn't it? Frank William Abagnale is the the lead star in the show Catch Me If You Can, which many of you watched in two thousand and two, based on his autobiography. And you probably envisioned Leonardo DiCaprio in that particular role. It was a film that Steven Spielberg directed, a really marvelous film and a tremendously convincing story. Now, it was an interesting article, not too many years after the movie came out, talking about what we can learn from con men. It's a really interesting article. And and it really is counterintuitive in some ways. Uh, The article argues that what we learn from con men is that it's really less about smooth talking and it's more about good listening to con someone. Um, It has less to do with being good on your feet and more to being uh, prepared and well-researched so that you can answer every question that might come your way. But there's one uh, unmatched qualification if you want to be a successful con man. And that is you must have confidence connected to charm. This is the way Time Magazine puts it. Top con artists, whether they're pushing hot paper or hawking phony oil leases, are always well-dressed they exude an air of confidence and authority, and they are usually as charming, courteous, and seemingly sincere as a politician seeking re-election. Now, of course, that story of Frank William Abignale and Time Magazine's noting of what we can learn from con men have really a whole lot to do with what we're talking about here in First Samuel chapter 16. And a tremendous amount to do with what is one of the major themes of the entire Bible. Summarized for us here in verse 7 by that little phrase, man looks on the outward appearance while God looks at the heart. Now many scholars believe that that verse, not merely a key verse of 1 Samuel 16, but a key verse for the entirety of 1 and 2 Samuel Because throughout these narratives and as we will see as David's life unfolds, not everything is as it appears to be. And we as a people are often tricked or conned by our eyes, by what it is that we think we see and the conclusions that we draw from what it is that we see because we are a people who are prone to judge a book by its cover. And what this passage teaches us is that's really, really dangerous. And so, I really want to look at this passage just really under two headings this morning. I want to look at how we see, and I want to look at how God sees. I want to look at how we see, and I want to look at how God sees. And the amazing thing is, you already know the answer to the sermon. But I think we'll learn some things as we go along. I want you to see why this is the lead thing, because it's not immediately accessible to us in uh, the opening of this passage here in First Samuel chapter 16, but I think that you'll see that the Lord is leading us to really explore those two realities. Right there in verse 1, it's the Lord who comes to Samuel and he says, listen, quit crying over the spilt milk of Saul. We're done here. I want you to fill your horn with oil and I want want you to go to Bethlehem because there I I have provided for myself among the sons of Jesse a king. That's the language he uses. I have provided for myself among the sons of Jesse a king. Now, what's interesting about that word provide is that in some of your translations, it actually reads, I see for myself. And that's appropriate to the root word that's there in the Hebrew. We could translate it. The Lord is saying, I see for myself a king among the sons of Jesse. Now, the reason that's important is because in verse 6, of our text, this language of the same root word shows up again, but it shows up really differently with Samuel. We're told that Samuel comes after inviting Jesse's sons to the sacrifice, that he looks upon Eliab. It's the same root word from provide in verse one, which you wouldn't necessarily see in the translation. He looked upon Eliab, and what conclusion do you draw? Oh, yeah, this is our guy. He saw Eliab, immediately knew. Eliab is our God, And God saw in verse 1, and he actually, he pauses here, and he teaches Samuel something. He goes, he goes Whoa there, cowboy. Eliab's not my guy. Because I'm not looking at the things that you're looking at. I'm looking differently than you look. Now, what we see in this particular text is that there are these two ways of seeing there's the way that we typically see, and there's the way that God typically sees. And when God sees, He sees profoundly more than we see. And in part of the reason He sees profoundly more than we see is because He's looking for different things than we're looking for. You ever heard that you find what it is that you're looking for? That's the point here. You find what it is you're looking for. You see the things that you're hoping to see. You're looking for. To see, And the reason that the metaphor of seeing is so big in the Bible from cover to cover, and we won't take time to explore it, we don't have time, but I want you to see that this notion of seeing, even in the way that we use the word, is really important to the understanding of meaning and value and what's important. We'll often say things like, well, hey, what do you see? And we don't simply mean, hey, I see the stained glass window. I see lots of bright and shining faces. I see a pulpit. I see a Bible. We don't mean make an observation. A lot of times we mean, do you understand? Do you understand? You know, let me give you an example. I was at a flag football practice on Friday night with my son, Knox. The coach was teaching them what a sweep to the left looked like. And they weren't getting it. And finally, somebody got it. And, the, you know, coach, coach Seth, he's so excited. And he just says, did, did you guys see that? That's what he said. Now, was Coach Seth's game, did you watch him? Not really. Coach Seth was saying, do you understand what I'm trying to tell you? Did you get it? He finally did what I coached him to do. Did you see it? He meant, do you understand? But in 1 Samuel chapter 16, there's something even bigger with regards to seeing, and it's often the way we use the language as well. It doesn't simply mean, do you observe or do you understand? It means what really matters to you. What's really important for you? Now, you, you know this. We are actually, right now, as we're looking at this church plant that we're exploring in Spring Hill that many of you are play, praying for and some of you are meeting with us for the possibility of seeing another church that we're asking for the Lord to to raise up in Middle Tennessee, we have, as a church, a search committee that's beginning to look for a candidate that would potentially be a pastor for this church plan. And one of the things that each one of the men that we would speak to and are speaking to about this are going to ask us a question. And you know the question they're going to ask us? They're going to ask us, what are you looking for? for? Just as you would hire somebody. And that question is different than understanding or observation. That's a question is, what is valuable to you in this position? What's a non-negotiable to you? What's the essential characteristics or qualities that are needed for the person that you're looking for in that position? And I want to argue here that when we're seeing Eliab, that we're doing a very similar thing. We're not merely observing and we're not merely understanding. We're getting to the very core of our being. We're getting to what it is that really motivates us, what really drives us, where our desires are, what holds weight for us. Now, I want you to see that this is all the way through 1 Samuel 16. It's all the way through 1 Samuel. I just want to note a couple of things here. The text here opens with Samuel being sent to Bethlehem. Is being sent there to anoint a new king of Israel. And the question we should ask is, why is he going to anoint a new king of Israel? Well, it's because the the present king of Israel is a disaster. His name is Saul. Now, we could look at a whole bunch of different things in Saul's life. And listen, we'll get to see several glimpses going forward. It's going to get worse. Okay. But, but let's just think about the previous chapter. If you have your Bibles, you might even just look at it in 1 Samuel chapter 15 because, I mean, I could turn to any one of the chapters and probably find something. But 1 Samuel 15 it seems appropriate because it's just previous to this. Samuel has told Saul, by the power of God, to go and destroy, utterly destroy, leave nothing living among the Amalekites. And you know what Saul did? Saul decided he would go and he would slaughter the Amalekites, but he would save Agag, their king, He would spare him and he would spare a bunch of the sheep and the oxen and the cattle. And instead, he would just sacrifice them to the Lord. And the problem with that is that that's not what God said. (laughs) He, He disobeyed God. And we're told in 1 Samuel chapter 15 that God regrets making Saul the king over Israel. And Samuel is sent to Saul. And he tells Saul, listen, the Lord has rejected you as the king of Israel. And you can tell that Saul very desperately, in fact, in a pretty dramatic setting at the end of 1 Samuel 15, Samuel turns to leave Saul, even though Saul wants him to stay. And he reaches out for Samuel and he tears the skirt of his robe and he gets a little piece of the cloth in his hand. And you know what? It's it's kind of one of those ironic, kind of foreboding moments. He He looks down at Saul and he says, the kingdom of God has been torn from you he says. Now that's the context of moving into 1 Samuel 16. Now here's what's amazing. If you had told anybody back in 1 Samuel chapter 9 that the kingdom of God was going to be torn from Saul and that he was going to become an utter disaster, the worst hire in the kingship of the history of Israel, they would have laughed at you. I mean, because look at how he's described in 1 Samuel 9, 1 and 2. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was was Kish, who had a son whose name was Saul. And he was a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. You see, they saw him and they just went, oh yeah. Like, that's the stuff kings are made of. This, this is definitely our guy. I mean, this is the Fabio of that century. You know, bulging biceps, 6'2", 3% body fat. I mean, he's, he's remarkable. He is, he is a hunk of manhood. Utter disaster. Utter disaster. Crash and burn. And no one saw it coming. Why? Because man looks on the appearance. And God looks on the heart. Now, if you actually look at 1 Samuel 16, you realize that we're on the verge of this very same thing happening again. You know, you would think, okay, now the people of Israel have totally learned their lesson. Samuel, certainly of all of them, he is no longer going to be captivated by bulging biceps and wavy black hair. And then Eliab shows up and immediately what does he say surely this is the lord's anointed he falls in the same trap this is our man he just looks like it and what's remarkable in the passage is that god actually whispers in samuel's ear hey i don't i don't look at people the way you look at people don't look on his appearance, or the height of his stature. Notice the two qualifications that God gives. It's the two things that were related to Saul back in 1 Samuel 9. He was taller, a shoulder and a head above all of the people, and he was handsome. And there in the text, he says to Samuel, I'm not looking for for Saul. I'm not looking for a man like Saul. Now, even more so, I think within the text of Scripture is when we begin to look here at Jesse. I mean, it's really quite quite remarkable. I mean, it, we can get Samuel's about to fall down the same path that the people of Israel already fallen down with Saul. But look, Jesse himself—it it appears in the midst of the text—is falling down the same trap. Samuel here arrives at Bethlehem. We're told the elders are stressed out about it, They're very anxious. Now they are because he's a prophet and a priest of God. I mean, he's coming to little old Bethlehem. He doesn't just show up to Bethlehem on a regular basis. And so he shows up, it's a big deal, it's unannounced, everybody's stressed out about it, and the elders want to know, hey, um, welcome, Um, is this a peaceable visit? (laughs) It's the moment where you kind of go, the president's here, and he didn't tell us he was coming. Um, This could be bad for us. It's that sort of moment is what the elders say. And he goes, no, I've come peaceably. I've come to sacrifice. And through the sacrifice, um, he's also got something else up his sleeve. This anointing of a new king. And he invites Jesse and his sons to come. It's the biggest event that's ever happened in Bethlehem history. Okay? And Jesse and his wife, they go out and get totally new threads, go to the best hairstylist in town. They get everybody ready, get their boys ready. They're bringing to the sacrifice. And they get, oh, we've got to have somebody keep the sheep. Hey, David, stay, keep the sheep. We're going to head off to the sacrifice to hang out with the bigwig Samuel who has come to town. Now, I just want to put it in context so you can see what's taking place. It's it's the mayor of Franklin invites you to his house. You know, invites you and your family and you you get all dolled up for the occasion and you be sure that your 2-year-old has a babysitter at home because he or she will not appreciate the event. And may in fact ruin the event. And so you are gonna be sure that they're in safekeeping far away from what will be a very nice time with the mayor and his wife that night. And you get there and you realize that the seat of honor at the table is a high chair with your two year old's name on it. And the mayor's going, Where is your where's your son? Where's your daughter? Uh there they there. We'll be right back. And <laughs> That's exactly what's going on here. Now, why do you leave your two-year-old back at home? Why do you leave David back at home? Because man looks at the outward appearance. But God looks in the heart. In in Jesse's mind, there's, there's no way that David is the subject matter, the point, the answer to the very reason that Samuel has come to town. It's not even on his radar. Now, we, we may laugh at this, but listen. This is how we live. That's, that's why it's so important. This is why 1 Samuel 16 is so critical. This is how we live. This is how we make decisions. This is how we choose priorities. By face, by exteriors, by assumptions and judgments we make, by things that are superficial and skin deep. Man looks on the outward appearance. This is why Dale Riles Davis in his commentary says, This entire scene is set up to show the peril of our first impressions. The peril of our first impressions. He's absolutely right. Now you've probably been told, like me, if you've been trained and doing job interviews, that that you, you have about six or seven seconds to make a first impression. Right? Six or seven seconds. Do you know how much you can do in six or seven seconds? You can smile, probably swap names. And the person has a conception of who you are. And it's been told that from that point, they begin to filter the rest of the information they get from you through that initial impression. You're no longer on a turf that's unassumed after seven seconds. Why has it worked that way? Because man looks in the outward appearance. But God looks in the heart. I mean, you've kind of been watching the presidential election thing? Did you all know that was happening? Um, We're going to be voting for a president before too long. The entirety of the process, it's about face. In fact, a lot of the dialogue has been about faces. And we can poke fun at it. And we can be embarrassed by it. And we can talk about the superficiality of it. But how many times do we fall into the same trap? How many times do we see someone walking down our neighborhood who doesn't look like a person who should be in our neighborhood? And it took us about a half a second to be worried about them. You see... What we see taking place in the culture at large is not something that is atypical to the way you and I function. It's our hearts on screen, and it looks uglier on screen. But if we paid a little attention to what's actually going on, on the inside, it looked pretty ugly too. You see, I mean, this is what's really happening so much of the time in the function of the way that we live our lives. And it's often why it is that we are so powerfully drawn to something like Facebook. And so simultaneously sick of it. And yet no one's going to cancel their account. It's why when we look at the pictures of the happy shining faces and we think they're living the dream, we know behind the scenes if we're paying attention, their life is as much of a mess than yours But for some reason or another, we get sucked into thinking it's different out there somewhere. But that's because we look on the outward appearance. Whereas God looks on the heart. You see, it's really no wonder that the summation of the law is love the Lord your God with all your heart. With all your heart. The heart, as the Puritans described it, was the throne room of your life. It's the center from which you do everything. It's the real you. It's not the projected you. It's not the you that you wished you were. It's not the you that you're desperately convincing everybody else that you are. It's the real you. It's the unfiltered you. It's the ugly, oftentimes, you. And this is why it's so huge in the Scripture and why the heart is so important to the casting of the eye of God. And he's not put off by the externals. And it's more than what we tend to think. We tend to think when we hear, you know, heart, we think feeling. We we think emotion. But when you look at the Scripture, the heart oftentimes thinks. The heart oftentimes chooses. The heart oftentimes feels. The heart oftentimes behaves. What it's trying to show us in the scripture is that the heart is tied to everything that we are. It's actually just trying to show us exactly what Solomon says in Proverbs 4.23. Above all else, guard your heart. Why? For from it flow the springs of life. You know, there's nothing that you've ever thought, there's nothing you've ever felt, there's nothing you've ever done that's not been connected to your heart. That's what the Bible is saying. And that's why it's so important to the Lord. That's why God is not primarily just interested in changing the way you think, though it will include that, or changing the way you feel about something, or changing what you do about something, though it will include all those things. He's interested in transforming you from the inside out. He wants the entirety. He wants the heart. And to have the heart is to have it all. It's to have the whole person. And so let's put it in perspective just really practically for a minute. The heart is the reason some of us choose work over relationships. And it's the reason why others of us choose relationships over work. The heart is the reason that some of us spend too much money. And the heart is the reason some of us save too much money. The heart is the reason we choose to sleep in rather than go to the gym and exercise. The heart is the reason we choose to exercise rather than stay home and read a book to our children. Our heart is the reason we chose Blue Coast Burrito over Chipotle, though we debated it in our minds for a while. A heart is the reason why we're asked, how are we doing, and we lie most of the time. Our heart is the reason why men in their mid-50s buy sports cars. And we could go on. There are always a number of reasons for the reasons that we do the things that we do. But you will choose something. And when you choose something, it is inescapably connected to your heart. Because our heart is always pointing us to something. It's always pulling us towards something. It's always compelling us towards something. Because the heart is primarily not about thought. Or not about action. It's about desire. It's about want. It's about love. Because at the very core of our being is we are driven creatures. You see, the person who is working hard to become CEO in their company is driven just like the person who's sitting on their couch eating potato chips, vegging out on evening television. Their desires are different, but they're motivated by desire. They're different desires, but they're all motivated by desire. You see that tug-of-war in your heart? that says, do I eat the extra piece of bread or do I leave it, is a battle, not a thought. It's a battle of desire. It's a battle of longing. It's a battle about what you're going to love. A few more calories or a few less as you get ready for the summer and you worry about going to the swimming pool. You see, this is why Augustine was right. He said, wherever I am carried, my love is what is carrying me. Wherever it is I'm carried... My love is what is carrying me. In other words, the thing that I long for, that's how I'm getting there. One step at a time, choosing according to desire. Now this makes total sense why the gospel message says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. He loved the world. He was motivated. The heart of God was motivated by love. It's why Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's why he says the summation of the law is not check the boxes, not feel like you ought to do it, not think your way through life, but it is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And your neighbor is yourself. He's appealing to the fact that we are driven from the center by our hearts. And He knows that if He has our heart, He has it all. He has everything that we are. And here's the here's the reality. It's really not that hard to find your heart. It's, it's sad when we find it, usually. But it's not hard to find. Because Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 6 verse 41 in the Sermon on the Mount that where your treasure is, there your heart will be. That what you long for, that which you consider valuable. See, we're back at the beginning. That which you see meaningful. That's what you that what you treasure. There you're going to find your heart. You know how to find your heart? <laughs> what makes you angry? When your plans get thwarted and you don't get what you want? There's your heart. What, what makes you just elated to such a degree that you become self-forgetful? There's your heart. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And here's the problem. When you begin to look at your treasures, that's a great way to start is look at your calendar, look at your checkbook. Um, Where do you spend your time? Where do you spend your money? It'll say a lot about you. Now, you may not like what it says about you. I don't always like what it says about me. And what you begin to realize is, uh uh-oh, and that's when we turn to Jeremiah 17. Because Jeremiah 17 says this the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? If you, if you spend a little time reflecting on your heart, it's not a great subject. You may have been told, hey, listen, follow your heart. Well, <laughs> um, don't. Don't. Your heart is a mess. Okay, you need a new heart. Like, be really careful. Be really guard your heart. We're told for from it flow the springs of life. Guard your heart. Now listen, your heart is desperately wicked. So much so, Jeremiah goes, "Who can know it?" I mean, the more I look at it, I don't even know what I'm motivated by most of the time. I get confused looking at myself. Yeah, it's that bad. And here's the reality: this was true. This. Wicked heart was true of Saul, but let, let me tell you, friends, I don't want you to, I don't want you to mistake what's going on here in 1 Samuel 16. It was also true of David. I, the, the, worst, the worst lesson you could derive from this passage is, you know, God looked at the sons of Jesse and he was like, David has a good heart. I mean, he's just, he's a sweet young man. I, I can tell he is he is a He is a straight arrow. He is true blue all the way through. This is not going to be a problem at all. Saul, boy, he was crooked. But but David, he's going to do well. Well, Let me me just ask you a question. Do you consider adultery and murder coming from good hearts? Because that's true of David. What does it mean that David is a man after God's own heart? That he, he chose according to the heart? I think it means this. I think it means quite clearly that he saw in David not one who was going to be perfect with regards to his motivations, his drives, and his behaviors. He saw he was one who would be truly repentant all the way through, who would over and over fall on his face and over and over write Psalm 51, which we confessed in our service today. He was one who knew that he didn't have it all together. It didn't matter how handsome he was and how beautiful his eyes were. are. You see, that's what's odd about this passage. You expected David to be ugly. Saul was beautiful. And we get to David and we go, oh yeah, he's going to have like a, you know, you know, defigured face or something. You know, and they're going to describe it. And they go, oh wait, he's handsome. What's going on here? You know what the Bible is actually telling you? It's saying what it looks like on the outside doesn't matter in the kingdom of God doesn't matter. Saul was beautiful. David's beautiful. It doesn't matter because it's ultimately about the will of God. And it's ultimately about the grace of God. And it's ultimately about Him paying for the sins that Saul and David have made and the sins that you and I have made when we lived by shiny externals and begin to change us from the inside out. You see, that's why the heifer is so important. The heifer in some ways is the lead character. I love it here in the text because Samuel is told to go and anoint David and he doesn't know it's David at that point. But he's told to go to Bethlehem and anoint the next king of Israel and and Samuel goes, "Whoa! I mean, Saul's going to kill me if he finds out about this." He goes, "Yeah, let, let's let's say you're going to go sacrifice." I, just, I love that line. I would love to figure that out entirely. But what's clear is that it's absolutely true, even though it's not everything that's going to happen when he goes there. But he says, go and sacrifice. In fact, take a heifer. Take a young cow who's not had a calf. And as you anoint David, I want you to give a sacrifice. Because that is the key to all of this. As I anoint the next king of Israel, I'm not expecting a man who is going to save his people because he has messianic abilities. I'm right beside anointing the next king, giving a sacrifice that's pointing to the one who will be born in this very town, Bethlehem. One thousand years from this point. Who will become the heifer and will pay... For every one of David's sins and every one of your sins. Because He is a God who looks on the heart. And the man that God has chosen to look on the heart of for you and me is Jesus Christ, your substitute. Praise be to God's name. That when He looks at you and He looks at your heart... He knows the desperate wickedness of it but he doesn't value you and weigh you according to the mess that you are. he does it according to the purity of who Jesus is. He's still looking at the heart. It's just not your heart that he's applying it to. He's applying the heart of Jesus to you. And that's why when we read Jeremiah 17:9 that the heart is desperately wicked, Above all else, who can know it? We can take comfort in 1 John 3, 2 that says, When your heart condemns you, take comfort. For God is greater than your heart. And He knows everything. That's how John puts it. He's greater than your heart and He knows everything. It's worse than even you know, friends. And He loves you. And that's where the transformation begins. That's where the heart begins to be changed. Not when you well away on someone's will, forcing them to do what it is they're supposed to do. Not when you just simply try to change their ideas or make them feel inspirational things. It's the moment that your heart gets touched by the love of God that everything begins to change. And the more we live by outward appearance, the more it is we're distancing ourselves from the very things that God values, the very things that matter to Him. As we walk into this series, King David, Shepherd, Leader, I think that you'll find that it's really not so much about David, but it's about David's God. And it's about the love of David's God for David, for his people, for you and for me. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask you to confirm this. Press this truth into us because it's so hard for us to believe. The moment, Father, when we get up from these pews and we begin to talk and build first impressions, it's so hard for us to believe this. So unless you do this, there's no hope. But you have promised that you love your people and that you're at work through your spirit. So come now and press into us. In Jesus' name, amen.